The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark 15, 21 to 39. The word of God speaks to us. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to drink, him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. This is God's word to us. Um, good morning. Glad to see you guys. Um, hey, if you don't already know me, my name is Kale Freeman. I uh, serve as one of the pastors here at this church, and it's my honor to get to open up the Word of God with you guys today. So um, let's pray, and we'll get started. So Father God, um, as we uh, gather here today and as we are talking about a text that is familiar to many of us, Lord, we just pray that you would be able to meet us in a very new way with fresh eyes and with fresh ears, Lord, that you would be able to speak to every individual in this room. And Lord, we just pray that you would do that to our joy and to your glory, Lord, as you often do. So we pray for that even in a text so heavy as this. Amen. Back in uh, 2015, I had the opportunity to travel to London, and like many of you guys, I had like my bucket list of things that I like absolutely had to see before I uh, left the city. And um, I know what you're thinking, it's like Big Ben or Westminster Abbey, something with the Beatles or something like that, but in fact, the thing that was like number one on my list was Codex Sinaiticus, which of course, all of you guys know exactly what that is. <laughs> but for both of you guys who don't, um, Codex Sinaiticus is the oldest complete New Testament Greek manuscript that has ever been found. So it's this giant book. It's like this big. Um, it's from 350 AD is whenever it was penned or whenever it was uh, uh, transposed. And uh, it, was, it was found by this guy named Constantine von Tischendorf, which is just awesome. And uh, man, I mean, I nerded out about 
this book so much. So uh, I was with my wife and her family, so I drug all of them over to the British Library. So like you can actually like check out an actual book there, and then you can also go to their historical section. And I get to see this. I've had classes on this, like a lot of classes on this. This is like one of the most important manuscripts to the translating of your modern Bibles that you have in your laps right now, right? So I'm just, I'm nerding out. I'm geeking out big time. But I start looking around. There's other really cool things around it, but they all like really pale in comparison. So we have Jane Austen's writing desk over here. And then over here is like the original Petri dish full of penicillin, like the very first penicillin ever made. And it looked like something like, uh, kind of looks like kombucha is really disgusting. Um, and all of that was great and all, but I started looking around and I'm like, why isn't, why isn't this codex, why is it, codex just means book, why isn't this, this amazing Bible, why is this not like the chief attraction? In fact, it's like kind of in the back. I started looking around, I'm like, Jane Austen's cool and like penicillin's great, you know, especially if you're sick. But I'm like, why, why is this book in here with this? Like, I was about to start grabbing, like, the security guard and the museum curators, and I was about to be like, do you guys even know what this thing is, <laughs> you know? Uh, and, um, you know, like, which would have been to my wife's chagrin, so I did not do that. Um, but, you know, I, I started thinking, I was like, you know, I see that they value the text. It's, it's here in this museum, but they don't value it in the same way that I value it. And, of course, to be able to rightly appraise the value of something is, like, super important in this life, is it not? Um, just think about uh, trying to do a good business deal or uh, make a good investment. Like, you really want to know how much something is worth. I mean, just think about your Beanie Baby collection from the 90s. It's, it's, it's going really bad for you, and you feel that pain of like, man, I really overshot that appraisal of value, didn't I, you know? And then you think about also like the things that you can appraise that are not material in nature. You think about the value of your uh, spouse, of your children, the value of your job, the value of your hobbies. All these things have values, but you can see where they all just kind of like run together like a big train wreck whenever you overvalue some that you ought not and undervalue others that you ought not. Just think about like the, the friendship or the relationship that is no more because either you or the other person undervalued it for where it should have been. So what we're going to be talking about today is the value of the cross. Um, if, you look about, uh, if you look around at any church in any country uh, at any time in history, like you're going to see crosses and you're going to see lots of crosses in Christians' homes, but it's become so prevalent, and not a bad thing, but it's just so prevalent that people just wear it just because. Like, people who don't even follow Jesus have um, uh, uh, cross necklaces and cross t-shirts and these kind of things, and, like, that's great because we didn't invent it, um, you know, like the Romans did, but it's very special to us, but it's just like, you know, you can do that if you want, but the difference of the value is completely different. So what we're going to be talking about today is valuing the cross. We're going to be doing that in Mark chapter 15, verse 1. So if you guys aren't already there, we're going to start at verse 1 in Mark chapter 15. So a little bit about this text before we, be get, uh, before we begin. Um, this text has so many callbacks to the entire book of Mark. It's like all coming to a head here, and we're not even going to be able to hit all of them. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful piece of literature in and of itself. But here's what's going on. Jesus showed up on the scene, and he said uh, back in chapter 1 that he was here to proclaim the good news. And what he's done is he's unfolded this for us uh, across the entire gospel of Mark. And he said, hey, listen, I'm coming as the Christ, and I'm coming to give my life as a ransom for many. He's told his disciples this like 
very clearly, like explicitly three times in like chapters eight, nine, and 10, and they're not getting it. He even says like, hey, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. And they're just like, I don't understand, right? This passage begins the morning after Jesus was already condemned to death, but he was condemned to death by the Jewish council known as the Sanhedrin, okay? That's what we went through last week. And he's been wrongfully convicted of blasphemy. So today, in terms of what value we put on the cross, what we're going to be talking about is uh, that the king was rejected, that there's value, secondly, and that the king was abandoned, and that there's value, lastly, and that the king gave his life. So let's begin by reading verses 1 through 5 here in chapter 15. It says, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound uh, Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him again, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges that they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. So why do we value the cross? We value it because the king was rejected and condemned. So as I said before, the Sanhedrin shows up. They've already condemned Jesus to death, but then they bring him to Pilate. We don't hear a whole lot about Pilate in Mark's account. But uh, just to sum it up in the other accounts, what we know from history, Pilate was a Roman governor. Uh, Rome had conquered Judea sometime before, and they were um, uh, ruling over Judea. And by the way, Judea and the Jewish, Jewish Sanhedrin, they did not like this in any way, shape, or form. And uh, Pilate was a magistrate from this other uh, country that is opposing them and occupying their land. Uh, Pilate in history is known for being like pretty much an anti-Semite. I mean, he just did not like the Jews, and he was also like a super harsh administrator. So they bring Jesus to him, though, as a necessary evil. That's because even though uh, Rome had given them the ability to self-govern, the right of the sword or the right to actually execute someone was for Rome alone. So they bring him to Pilate. And he says, uh, hey, The accusation is that he is the king of the Jews. Now, if you look back in chapter 14, what they actually convicted him of was of being the Christ, right? Uh, Christ meaning the anointed one. But they said, no, 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 no. We can't bring that to Pilate. That won't get him killed. Because the idea is like the Christ, the anointed one. Like if they said, hey, he's the anointed one, Pilate would say like, yes, so what? Because it would sound like more of like a religious thing, like a religious leader. He'd say, get out of here. But instead, they took a half-truth because, of course, the Christ was the king. He was the king of the Jews. And they said, okay, we're going to twist this a little bit and make it sound a little bit more like he's here for insurrection, that he's a rival political leader, and that will get him killed. So this is, in fact, a secularized version of his title as the Christ. So they bring him there, and they say, hey, uh, he's the king of the Jews. And uh, as we read, Pilate's asking him, like, hey, do you want to defend yourself? And he's, he's, he doesn't say much. He says, you've said so. Starting in verse 6, it says, Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. 
So as it says in verse 6, there is this tradition where Pilate, as the overseer of this subservient nation, he's like, hey, I'm going to like do them a solid and release one person from prison every single year by popular vote. So Jesus is already here. Um, Pilate's already here. The Jewish Sanhedrin's already here. And then the crowd shows up for this once-a-year event. It's almost like they didn't even know that Jesus was going to be there, but Pilate didn't really have to be much of a prophet or a sage to be like, hmm, it's like, this is about envy, you know? Like, this is, this is about your power, it says in verse 10. And he says, okay, like, let's mess with these guys a little bit, because again, we know from history that he didn't like Jews at all. So he says, hey, um, well, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Like, he's just playing with the uh, Sanhedrin here. But what we hear in the rest of the, uh, of the account here from verses 11 to 15 is that the Sanhedrin actually riles up the crowd. They say, no, 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 I want you to release for us instead Barabbas, which by the way, his name is Bar-Abbas. It means the son of the father, which seems significant by the end of this text. And they say, no, 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 um, how about the guy who's guilty of insurrection let that guy who's guilty go free, and instead let's condemn this innocent man for insurrection. So Jesus, the innocent king, is rejected, and he's condemned, and he trades the place for someone who was guilty. Uh, I came across a quote from Robert Greene in The 48 Laws of Power that really illustrated what the, um, what the Sanhedrin was doing here rather clearly. It says, power requires the ability to play with appearances, and to this end, you have to learn to wear a mini mask and keep a bag full of deceptive tricks. A masquerade should not be seen as ugly or immoral. All human interaction requires deception on many levels. Um, to say that this book is controversial would be an understatement, right? Um, it was written like in the last like, 20 or 30 years, something like that. It sold 1.2 million copies, so like, it's like you know, bestseller, like times like two or whatever. Um, one of the most requested books in U.S. prisons across the entire nation, and uh, this is a fun fact that I shared at the last service. Uh, he actually ended up uh, writing a second book called The 50th Law with 50 Cent. <laughs> that guy. So... Um, I don't know what's up with that, but I share that with you today because it really showed a picture, even though it's so new, it showed a picture of really what the Sanhedrin was doing and really what Pilate was doing. Uh, they were just merely putting on the right mask to be able to deceive and be able to really fight for their own power. They saw that Jesus was a threat to their own power, and they wanted to stay in power, so they're going to use that power in order to get him killed. And of course, Pilate, same thing, he's sitting here as a Roman magistrate. He doesn't want anyone thinking that he wouldn't take out someone for Caesar. He, don't want, he doesn't want to lose his power. So he says, sure, I will, under the mask of a public servant, go ahead and have this innocent man killed. And the thing is, is this still happens today. Like, we all see power plays and power moves, and we all really hate them, right? You know, like, none of us like that, especially when it happens to ourselves. And yet, at the same time, there's also power plays and power moves that we're all using on Jesus all the time. That's myself included, but I just have to ask you, how are you trying to put yourself in power over Jesus Christ? How do you identify with what the Sanhedrin and Pilate was doing? What mask, perhaps, do you put on? Do you put on the mask of um, piety, where you look like you follow Jesus as long as there's another set of eyes in the room, but as soon as there's not, you just kind of wish that Jesus would be executed from your life functionally? And for you, it might be something different, but we all have to ask, how do we try to put our power over Jesus Christ? 
But I want you guys to see now the second thing that I want you to see in the text today. The second reason why we need to value the cross, which is that the king was abandoned and crucified. He was abandoned and crucified. In verses 16 through 20, we hear about the scourging, or at 15 through 20, we hear about the scourging, we hear about the procession and the mockery of our Lord. Um, Jesus is scourged. You might have heard of like the, uh, the flagellum, the Roman flagellum, uh, the cat of nine tails, this kind of thing. So it's like a whip with multiple different parts. And on those uh, tails, it has like a bunch of lead and bone and all kinds of things. Um, if you've ever heard of the um, uh, Jewish historian Josephus, maybe you've heard like other pastors bring him up, like he's a super important figure. I normally think that historians are like, you know, kind of weak dudes, you know, tiny necks, you know what I mean? And this guy, uh, he, he, has this, he has this part where he writes about how he had a couple of his enemies in Galilee uh, scourged until their entrails were visible. Like he made their insides their outsides, you know? So, I'm sorry, that wasn't necessary. But, uh, but, but all to say that, um, you know, it was really terrible. And we can see that from other uh, accounts outside the Bible. And this was done to our Lord. And likewise, under the idea that he was the king of the Jews and that he was a political insurrectionist, they make fun of him. And they take the crown of thorns, they shove it on his head, they take the purple robe and put it around him. I don't think it was like literally a purple robe that was like super nice because, you know, he would have got blood all over it and ruined it, right? They're not exactly treating him well here. And they act like they're paying homage to him. And then they parade him from the governor's headquarters, which is called the Praetorium, and takes him all the way out uh, to the execution site outside the gate, which, by the way, is a perfect picture of what a victorious Roman general would do. He would literally start uh, being crowned and robed at, a, uh, at the praetorium, at the governor's house, and he would parade himself all the way through the city uh, to the exit, all the while, by the way, bringing a sacrifice that's still alive and the instrument of its execution. It, Mark is just trying to say, like, look, my original Roman readers, look what's happening here to our Lord. In irony. Verse 21. And they compe- uh, compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. They crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with them, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Many of us have seen depictions of crucifixion, but just to say it very simply, crucifixion is um, where a man is put on a Roman cross. He's affixed to it by either rope or nails, just depending on what they decided at the, uh, at the particular execution. And this was normally a death that took hours upon hours and days upon days. People would go back and forth between consciousness and shouts of rage. Um, people would, uh, you know, uh, begin to die from um, no water. Oh my gosh, what is that called? Dehydration, thank you. Uh, yeah, 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 dehydration. And um, so they begin to die from dehydration. They begin to die from all the excruciating pain. And then finally, what normally gets them is the actual um, suffocation because the weight of their bodies begins to push on their rib cage until they just can't breathe. And so this happened to our Lord. I don't know if uh, you guys have ever seen the History Channel show Alone, but it is, it's pretty rad. It's pretty cool. 
Um, so here's the idea. This is not survival. It's a survivor is called alone, and there's a reason for this. They, they drop a bunch of wilderness, uh, wilderness survival guides and stuff like that in the middle of, like, nowhere, like Canada, like middle of nowhere, where there's, like, bears and stuff. And um, they drop them off, 10 of them, alone with 10 items to survive. And the idea is that they're supposed to be the very last ones there, okay? And if they do that, they will actually uh, win the prize and all the prestige that goes along with it. So they're just trying to survive longer than everyone else. So this one episode that I saw, I had this lady named Brooke, and she was doing really good. She's in the middle of uh, Mongolia, and all things considered, was doing great. She had shelter, food, uh, well, enough food, water, fire. Um, she, she had it all, but you could see every single week where she's like doing her like camera interview uh, of herself, and it's like, man, like her countenance and her morale is just going down. And then eventually she, say, she calls in, she says, hey, I'm done, come pick me up. She loses, and that's okay. She would have done a lot better than I would have done. But all the same, she says, hey, listen, the weather here is terrible. The starving is really bad, but I just don't want to be alone. And ultimately, they named the series of that correct. Because, you know, Survivor is already taken, but surely it's because a lot of these guys can't even make it because we can go through so much hardship, but to do it alone breaks the best of us. And so this happens to our Lord. You know, um, Jesus is here crucified by himself, abandoned by his disciples. Um, back in, uh, or down in verse 40 of 41, we hear about how there were some women there who were watching, who were supporting him. Uh, in another gospel, we hear about a, 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 at least one disciple who was there. But Mark seems to like kind of be winking at us here in verses 21 and 27, saying like, hey, by the way, I'm trying to remind you that the disciples should have been here. You see, Jesus said in 834 of Mark, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And then Peter in chapter 14 says, hey, if I have to die with you, I will, die, I will not deny you. If uh, everyone else betrays you and falls away, I will not. And yet in verse 21, it's not Simon Peter who is carrying the cross. It's Simon of Cyrene. Jesus says, hey, pick up your cross and follow me. And yet in chapter 10, James and John come to him, maybe you remember, and they say, hey, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he's like, okay, cool, tell me. And they say, hey, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. But in verse 27, it's not James and John who are crucified at his right and his left. They're not bearing their cross. It's a couple of robbers and insurrectionists. Mark is saying like, hey, by the way, wink, wink, this is where you guys should have been if you were actually following Jesus. They had abandoned Jesus and he suffered the abandonment. And guys, we all abandon Jesus. We all do it in our own ways to our own degrees. So I have to ask, how, how do you abandon Jesus? Where do you say, I will follow Jesus that far, but I won't go over there that will cost too much. Maybe, uh, maybe you're a part of uh, college here in town or somewhere else, and you're like, man, the cost of just being publicly outspoken about Jesus is just too high. I'm not saying everyone has to be a street preacher or anything like that, but man, do you avoid conversation to the point that you're like, I could bring up Jesus here, but I'm just not going to. Because ultimately what we're doing there is we're abandoning him in our own way. And maybe for you that's something different, but we have to ask ourselves, where do we abandon Jesus? Because we all do. But 
You guys have heard a lot of like really hard things in this text thus, thus far, and of course it's going to get harder, but there's actually a lot of good news in it. So the good news that I want you guys to see today is the third thing, the third reason why we value the cross, which is that the king gave his life as a ransom for us. So in this text, we see a lot of bad things, and like I said, it will continue to get a lot worse for Jesus here for a little bit, but we see the good news, but it's through the lens of irony, and I mean complete irony. He's crucified the Lord of glory, says the king of, Jew, uh, king of the Jews above his head, and then mockers and onlookers show up, and they start saying things, and it's so ironic. Verse 29 and 30, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And they're quoting him, but they're missing the point. They're not valuing his cross. He's literally, he, he taught on this, and it says in, in Mark uh, before this, it says he was talking about the temple of his body, and he was prophesying, he was saying like, hey, listen, if you destroy this body in three days, I'm gonna rise it up. He's talking about this literal moment, but they have no clue. Verse 15, 32, we have the Sanhedrin here, the Jewish leaders who had um, successfully gotten him crucified, and they're there just watching him in a vulgar, vulgar display of power. And they don't value his cross, and they say, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. But of course, it's exactly the fact that he's told all of his disciples now three times explicitly, the whole mission is to get to this point and all the leaders are like, hey, just come down from the cross. But it's so ironic because it's like, no, no, no. The whole point is that he is on the cross. That is what he wanted. But he finally speaks in Mark's account here for the first time since he talks to Pilate. And he speaks in 1534. He says, uh, you know, so he speaks in Aramaic. He says, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. And then it says, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this is a text that is just theologically rich. We can't possibly uh, hit every single thing that's here in this one text. I mean, it's huge. But the things that I want you to see here, the things that are really relevant uh, for this sermon today is specifically that he's calling out to God and he's quoting Psalm 22. Now, a lot of you guys have heard this before, but I found this interesting. Psalm 22 has the psalmist crying out to God and he quotes the very first verse very well. But listen to the next couple of verses. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but I do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Now, if we fast forward to the very end of this psalm, the psalmist actually has salvation from God. He has deliverance. So what is Jesus actually saying here? He's crying out to God, and he's saying, hey, why have you forsaken me for now, Right? He knows how this psalm ends. He's, he has one thing that he's going to say in this gospel other than you have said so in, the, in, this, in this account. And then he finally calls this out. He's quoting a psalm. And it's like he can say, Father, I'm not surprised that I'm here, but how much longer? I cry by day, but you do not answer. I cry by night, but I have nothing. He's like, why are you taking so long, Right? And of course, we'd all be able to say that based off of the, just like the idea of like the immense sufferings of Christ on a Roman cross. But the thing that we see from the rest of the weight of the New Testament is that there's a lot going on here. At this very same time, the full weight of the guilt of sin has been put upon him. 
And the full weight of the wrath of God for that sin has also been put upon him because he said that he came to be a ransom, a payment for the lives of many. So what's happening here is he's got the weight of his own body pushing against his lungs, and then he has the weight of every single bad thing that any of us have ever done. Just imagine like that feeling in the pit of your stomach for guilt over like the worst thing you've ever done. And then just kind of stop and be like, okay, what, what are the other worst things that I've ever done? And then take that feeling of guilt and then just kind of compound that times 100 and then times like every person that's ever lived. And that's probably not even enough because that's at least what we're aware of. And he felt that. In the book of Romans, it says that the penalty for sin is death. So actually, he's taking the wrath of God on sin and he's doing it as a payment, as a ransom for you and he's doing it for me. So he says... Father, I know why I'm here, but why do you delay? Why have you forsaken me? Verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Of God. So, in just a couple of words, the Son of God, the Lord of glory, the King of the Jews dies. It's a very quick statement for all the lead up, and yet it happened. And Mark points out something immediately after. It's like it's so short, almost on purpose, to point you to the next two verses. It says that. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and whenever the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, they said, truly, this man is the son of God. The last time we hear about anything being torn with the same word in Greek is chapter one. So maybe you guys remember this from about this time last year, whenever we started the book of Mark, and if you weren't here, that's okay, you can go back and reread it, chapter one, where Jesus is baptized and he's starting his uh, ministry on earth. And all of a sudden it says, same word, uh, schizo, I believe, um, the heavens were torn open and the father speaks and he says, behold my son. And no one else gets that he is the son until this moment, whenever the curtain of the temple, which by the way is um, uh, representative of the heavens, is schizo torn. And then all of a sudden somebody finally says it. Behold, this guy actually was the son of God. Mark is saying in his like awesome literary style, like, hey guys, stop for a moment. You should remember this. It's all come to a point. Here he is. You see the Son of God. And by the way, he's crucified. You see, the Sanhedrin, they said back in 32, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. But it's exactly that the Roman centurion saw that he was on the cross that he saw and he believed. He's the most unlikely person in all of the gospel to ever believe. Uh, centurion means that he was like the guy in charge of the execution squad, okay? Um, so I don't know if he was driving the nails or if he was telling them to drive the nails, but pretty bad. All throughout the gospel, the disciples just don't get Jesus, and he keeps trying to tell them explicitly, and they're not getting it. The Pharisees did not get it. The crowds did not get it. Pilate did not get it. And yet the most unlikely person runs into Jesus that day, and he gets it. And he sees that Jesus is divine, even though he's dying as a ransom for many. And, you know, maybe you stumbled upon Jesus Christ today or this week as well. Um, you know, I don't think the centurion was thinking, like, I'm going to wake up today and meet the Son of God. 
Um, and you know, the thing is, is like maybe you're meeting him right now and you're seeing him on this cross as we've described, as you've read in our holy scriptures. Or maybe that's happened earlier this week and maybe that's why you're in the room. But I just want to say like, hey, every one of us have rejected Jesus and every one of us have abandoned him. We're all on an even playing field and Jesus might literally be calling you right now to give your life over to him, to follow him. And I would just say, hey, don't move past that. Don't just say, oh, I feel that. That's making me feel something I don't like, but I'm just going to stuff that. No, no, no. Literally, the Son of God is speaking to you today, and he's asking you to do a couple of things, namely to value the cross. So what do we do with all this? We need to value the cross, and we need to do this in two different ways. First of all, we need to value the cross by trusting in his payment, by trusting in his payment. So even though we've all rejected him and abandoned him, even though we've all done a whole number of sins, which, by the way, sin is like anything that is against the will of God. Uh, it can be a, I messed this up last service, uh, a bad deed. It can be a bad thought. It can be a good deed with a bad intention behind it. And it can be a whole lot more than that. Almost anything can be corrupted into a sin. But it's just simply stated, there's, it's anything that goes against the will of God. And despite all the many sins that we've all done, and despite our abandonment and our rejection of him, he actually comes to die as a ransom, as a payment to save all of us from that sin and the guilt of sin and the punishment of sin. So we have to trust in this payment. Whenever we think of how can we possibly make ourselves our best, quote unquote, spiritually, or whenever we think how should we actually be able to interact with God because we've done all these bad things, a lot of us go to like, man, let me just really puff myself up with pride, but it's like religious pride. Let me put on that mask and let me just try to be as good for God as possible. And that just kind of leaves us dry and weary because it's just righteousness that we don't have. But we have to trust in his payment and say, God, we can come to you and I can come to you because I'm trusting in the payment of Jesus Christ to actually make that possible for me. But the second way that we need to value this cross is by giving our lives to the Son, by giving your life to the Son. Jesus Christ gave his life for all of you. So in turn, it only makes sense that we ought to give our lives to the one who gave his life for us. What this looks like is just a simple life of repenting and following. Repenting means to turn away from sin. So you see that what you're doing is you're following sin, you're loving sin, and all of a sudden you realize because you're reading the word of God or you're meeting Jesus Christ for the first time that, you know what, uh, I don't actually want to follow sin anymore and I don't want to love sin anymore because I've seen that Jesus already paid the, the penalty for that. Instead, I'm going to turn and repent and I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm gonna follow his way of life and follow what he has taught us to do. This is not like a one-time, one-and-done thing where you decide today and then you walk away and everything's good. This is a thousand decisions every single day to follow Jesus Christ. And we can do this not perfectly, and that's okay, because we know that Jesus has paid the price and we can trust in his payment. So what you guys have heard today, just in summary, is you know, why do we really value the cross? That's because the king was rejected on it he was abandoned on it, and he gave his life as a ransom for us on it. To merely look at the cross and say, man, I've heard about the cross every day for the last five years since I've 
come to this church or come to Christ or whatever and just say like, yeah, like I know, like I get it. It's like, no, 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 no. This is everything. Without this, we have nothing. It's the most valuable treasure we could possibly have. Um, I started talking about that really nerdy book at the beginning of the sermon uh, with you guys. And, you know, it's like the museum clearly valued the book. And I valued the book. And I was like, okay, it's on display. No one can touch it. It's very old. It's very valuable. But really, like, the thing that was most valuable about it for me was the story that it told and the story that it preserved. And all of that story comes to a head at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without that story in it, that entire book is nothing. With all its rules, with all of its morals, with all of its stories, it's absolutely nothing without the valuable story of the cross. And so in the same way, the Bible that you guys have maybe in your lap or that you're going to grab uh, after this service, like it's, it's of no value without this. And let me just say also, our lives have no meaning without knowing the value of the cross. So let us value the cross. Let's pray.